and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jess Myers, a law student at Santa Clara University School of Law. We will discuss her work on Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, Intermediary Liability, and Content Moderation. So welcome to the show, Jess. Thank you. Excited to be on it. So you you mentioned earlier that before we started, you wanted to make a little disclaimer. So maybe this is an appropriate time to do that. Yeah. So um, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to be a legal intern at Twitter this summer. Um, And because a lot of what we'll be talking about is kind of sensitive and overlaps with some of the work that I'm doing over there, I just want to make it very clear that my views are my views and nothing that I say is on behalf of Twitter or the company itself. So. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, maybe you could start um, for those of our listeners who might not be that familiar with internet law and with Section 230 specifically by explaining exactly what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is. Like how and why was it enacted? What does it do? And and why is it important? Sure. Um So to start out, Section 230 says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And I like to start with that definition because it, as much as I advocate for the law, uh, the definition is kind of nonsense. Uh, And it, in that regard, it doesn't really surprise me that people often get confused with it. So to boil it down, and I think um, Professor Jeff Jeff Kossif puts it best in his book, Section 230 is the 26 words that created the internet. Um, A better way to put the definition is websites are not liable for third-party content. Now, what that means is, say uh, somebody posts something defamatory about you on Twitter or Facebook, any of the big social media companies. You, as a user, cannot go after the social media company for that defamatory comment. Now, you might be thinking, um, that sucks because I want the comment removed. Um, It's ruining my career or it's ruining my reputation. I should be able to go after the platform. But when you think about it, if every one of these social media companies could be held liable for any type of defamatory content out there, they wouldn't exist or it would be very, 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 very hard for them to exist. Um, So the reason why Section 230 is kind of known as the law that created the internet is because it put in place this foundation for internet companies like social media companies to kind of evolve. Because without that liability, they were kind of free-for-all in the market um, to be able to moderate content kind of as they see fit. This all kind of came about because of two cases, um, the CompuServe case and uh, the uh, Stratton Oakmont case. So, So in the CompuServe case, basically what it came down to was you have a internet platform where people can post on forums all about, you know, different stuff, interesting topics, et cetera. And somebody had posted something defamatory about another company um, on a CompuServe web forum. Now, there's a lot that goes into CompuServe, and I'm not going to get into the technical details. So to kind of just make things clearer, um, 
just think of it as a web forum back in the day. This is back in like, you know, the early, early 1990s, I believe. So um, somebody had posted something defamatory about a company. That company got upset and came after CompuServe. Now, CompuServe said, hey, we don't monitor our content. There's no way that we would have been able to know about that defamatory post um, because we don't filter anything. We have no idea what you're talking about. It shouldn't come on us. We, we didn't know about it. And they won based on that. The courts agreed. They said, yeah, that's fair. There's, CompuServe doesn't, doesn't monitor all of their web forums. They have thousands of web forums. Uh, so it shouldn't be their fault that this, this post went out and uh, defamed this company. And that was great. Cool. Then you get the Stratton Oakmont case. That comes later. It's the same kind of idea, except, you know, it's another web forum, except um, in the Stratton Oakmont case, that web forum or that internet platform it was called Prodigy. They did monitor their service because they wanted it to be a little bit more family friendly. So, you know, they'd monitor it for inappropriate language and they wanted it to be more of a place where all users could go to, to talk. And again, kind of the same thing happened. You get uh, an, an internet user who defames another company um, on Prodigy's platform, and that company sues Prodigy. And the same, it doesn't go the same way as CompuServe for Prodigy because Prodigy moderated their content. So in a way, the courts decided, well, you could have known about this content, you moderate for some things. You should have moderated for this other thing. And you should have taken the post down. This kind of created a fire. Because now you've got these internet companies who are emerging who are like, well, we've got two options. And they call it the moderator's dilemma. On the one hand, we can go the CompuServe approach. And we can say, we don't want to monitor for anything. We, don't want, uh, we, we do not want to have that knowingly charge put on us. So if we don't look at our content, free for all, bury our heads in the sand, we can't be liable for it. But what about the internet platforms that want to have a family-friendly uh, platform? So they were concerned because they, they, so they took the approach and said, well, why don't we just over-monitor? We will monitor for everything. We will take anything down that possibly could be, constricted, can, could be construed as... Uh, abusive or defamatory or inappropriate. But then on that side, you've got an entirely chilled, censored platform. Neither of those approaches works for the internet as we see it today. And you can think about that in kind of Twitter and Facebook's context as well. Imagine if your Facebook, for instance, didn't take that approach or took the, let's say they took the CompuServe approach where they just buried their heads in the sand. You're going to see your Facebook's going to kind of turn into 4chan really quick. You see a lot of crap on your timeline because no one's moderating, moderating it. But then let's look at Twitter. Let's say Twitter takes, you know, the prodigy approach and they go, well, okay, we're going to over moderate. Now, when you tweet, maybe you have to wait 10 minutes because one of the content moderators on Twitter has to view your tweet before it can even go out because they have to moderate it. Section 230 eliminates that moderator's dilemma. And it kind of blazed a path to allow the Facebooks and the Twitter and, you know, 4chan and Reddit and everything that we know the internet as today to kind of come alive. Because now these companies don't have to worry about it, about the liabilities from either side, and they can take a any approach that they want to content moderation so that they can create a platform that is both 
you know, quote unquote, family friendly if they want it to be, but also not have it devolve into porn and hate speech and everything else. So that's kind of the, I would say the overview of Section 230. Um, it's, it, it, I, it is a law that created the internet is, is the best way to put that. So in a nutshell, essentially, Section 230 says that you can't hold the platforms liable for what people say on them. And as a context, as a consequence of that, platforms can develop in a much more kind of organic and freeform way. Absolutely. Cool. Well, to Jess, how, how did you personally get interested in in Section 230? I mean, I know that you're sort of like uh, almost, almost like the Section 230 fangirl girl or something. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> yes, um, and so I just, like, like how, did that, how did that happen? Um, okay, this is kind of an interesting story. So I discovered the internet as a kid, like very young, um, and I became obsessed with it. I was a nerd. So your typical basement dwelling, like I think I was actually in a basement with a computer nerd. Um, I discovered the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, and like I would put a disgusting amount of hours as a kid just scrolling the internet. I was on web forums. Um, I joke with my my with, back at Twitter. I started on Twitter in 2006, so that was the very beginning of Twitter. Um, so the internet's always been a huge part of my childhood. I was an internet troll. I was, you know, I was on every gaming site imaginable. Internet culture's always been a big part of my life. Um, when I got to high school, I kind of developed this big free speech advocate side. And so I was really into journalism. Um, I was very vocal about SOPA and HIPAA, those laws. Um, but free speech was always something that I held very, very close to me. Uh, in 2008, so uh, up until that point, I kind of figured, well, maybe I'll be a journalist or maybe I'll go to law school, be a free speech lawyer. But then, you know, 2008 hit. And that's when a lot of people in my life started telling me, you need to go do something that's going to make money. Um, because that was a really hard time for lawyers and just a lot of people in general. And so the recommendation was that I go into a STEM related field. So science, technology, engineering, math. So I figured, okay, well, I'm really into the internet, really into computing, so I'm going to pick up coding. And I kind of just changed my entire path. Um, I decided, fine, I'm going to go to college for computer science. And that was at least close enough. Uh, I never felt really fulfilled while I was studying computer science because um, it, it really wasn't what I loved and it wasn't what, something I was passionate about. But my senior year of college, I was required to take internet law which is interesting. And not a lot of uh, undergrads do that for their computer scientists. And I really think they should, because it was a class that was dedicated to internet ethics and to kind of teach computer scientists beyond the code um, that they have an impact. And in that class, you know, we had to study the ACLV Reno case. We learned about the Communications Decency Act and we had to write several papers. And of course, if you are studying internet law or researching internet law, and you're doing anything about the CDA or Section 230, the first like a billion links on Google are going to be from, you know, Professor Goldman or Daphne Keller, you know, those, and, and their blogs. So I happened upon Professor Eric Goldman's technology marketing law blog while I was studying and doing my research. And I like just became obsessed with it. I jokingly tell him, I think I've read every single one of his posts on his blog, which is either... <laughs> Which is either crazy or, you know, stalkerish. I don't know. But um, I, I like just got so invested in that. And 
that's kind of where when I when I learned about Section 230, everything I just had this moment of everything clicked. I was in love with the Internet. I was really into the free speech stuff. And Section 230 pieced it all together for me. So I just I was amazed with what I had learned. So I literally emailed Professor Goldman while I was still in school and was like, I want to fly out. I was in Virginia, D.C. area at the time. And I was like, I'm going to fly out to California and meet you. Um, I want to go to law school. Santa Clara seems cool. Did that, flew out, met him. And after that meeting I had with him, I, I came out of it and said, you know what? That's it. I'm moving to California. I'm going to study internet law under Professor Goldman. I'm going to Santa Clara, Santa Clara Law. And I did that. And now that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm uh, currently Professor Goldman's research uh, um, assistant, and I've kind of dedicated my life to this this field of internet law and uh, advocating for Section 230. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I, I wouldn't normally ask a question like this, but it seems appropriate under the circumstances. So I under I understand that you have a certain tattoo, and I wonder if you could talk about <laughs> that and why you got it. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> okay. The infamous, maybe famous section 230 tattoo. So, um, last November I got a section 230 tattoo. It's on my uh, left wrist. I did it for right before finals because I was probably having a breakdown and, you know, that seemed like a good, good response, but I had been wanting to get a tattoo forever and I decided I wouldn't get one until like I, it was something that was super meaningful to me. I didn't want to get like, you know, the infinity sign or whatever. No offense to anyone with an infinity sign tattoo, but, um, (laughs) so professor Goldman has in his syllabus that if you get the 26 words of section 230 tattooed somewhere, um, on a body part that's visible, he'll give you an A in his internet law class. Now I'm taking his class this fall, so it didn't really matter last fall when, when I got the tattoo, but I said, you know what? Screw it. That's what I'm going to do. I've dedicated my life to section 230. I'm going to die on this hill. I'm getting a section 230 tattoo. And so I did it and it's not all 26 words. So he refuses to give me an A in the class, but not that I need it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I'm sure, that I'm sure I'm confident you'll get an A anyway. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how the tattoo came about. And now um, it went a little viral on Twitter for a little bit. And I've gotten a lot of support for it. Um, I've had people offer me jobs like on the spot when they see it. I've had people say it's, you know, really stupid. So I've gotten all sorts of stuff. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. And so you also did... Uh, a TEDx talk about Section 230, which I thought was really interesting. I, I wonder if you could like just kind of in a nutshell, let people know what you wanted to convey in that talk and and also like why you did it. What did that mean to you? Sure. So what I wanted to convey, so my, my, my TED talk, it's uh, Section 230, what you don't know about it might destroy the internet. I did it for mainly the reason that Section 230 is on the minds of congressmen right now, of the regulators, and it's not in a good way. Um, Most recently, the uh, Hawley bill just came out. Um, I don't think it's going to pass because it's wholly unconstitutional and for other reasons, but it basically basically would be an amendment to Section 230 that says that platforms have to moderate content in a way that would be politically neutral, whatever that means. and so with a lot of that news on the front right now, with with FOSTA, that was, you know, that 
kind of became enacted in 2018. And with a lot of people talking about how Section 230 is, you know, destroying the Internet and um, it's you know allowing people to put out revenge porn and all sorts of all sorts of stuff. It was it became very clear to me that a lot of people have no idea what Section 230 is, um, including people in Congress. And so I really wanted to spread the message of what the law is in a non-political, in a non-political fashion, just what the law is, what it protects, and why it came about, mainly for everyone who is voting in these next elections, so that they can kind of think critically about the law before having kind of an emotional and angry response to it based on what they're seeing celebrities say about it and what politicians are saying about it, um, et cetera. And so that's what I kind of, it was an education piece. And that's what I was kind of hoping to get across in, in that message and being able to stand up there and do that as, um, a one L I mean, that was terrifying and, and daunting. I had my advisor in the audience there. So, um, that was crazy to me, but I'm also really, really gr- glad that I did it because I grew as a person. Um, and I really kind of helped launch my career after giving that talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it was great. So congratulations yeah. on that. And it was really cool that you did it. Um, I would note that honestly, some of the comments on the YouTube version of your talk are pretty mean spirited. And you've suggested that you've gotten some pretty mean spirited, I guess we could charitably call it feedback <laughs> from yeah. people. Uh, in general, I wonder how you feel about that. Um, so the number one rule of uh, the internet is mm-hmm. don't read the comments. But I do so anyways because I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, I don't read all of my DMs because they're gross. But I used to be an internet troll. Like I I used to I used to kind of flame people as well back in the day when I was a kid. Um, so I really don't take it that harshly and I, I really haven't taken. So yeah, I don't, I don't really take the commentary personally. I knew going into this field that I am advocating for something, you know, advocating for the tech companies is not an easy hill to die on. Um, and I just kind of make the point that, you know, I'm not I'm not advocating for big tech. I'm advocating for the Internet and for free speech. And I understand that that's there's a lot of sensitivity there. So, you know, I kind of take a lot of the backlash with a grain of salt. What I do try to do is for some of the comments that come back, if they're legitimate questions and it's not just trolling, I try to answer them um, because I do still strongly believe in this educational message as well. Um, but regardless I think in this day and age where you have a lot of people who are saying, you know, internet companies are biased against conservatives. And um, again, you've got a little bit of, you know, Section 230 is a misogynistic law. And how can you be a woman who's up there defending tech companies? It's that kind of vibe and culture. It's those kind of comments are inevitable. Um, So I just take it in stride. I actually recently had a ex-Trump aide retweet my TED my uh, TEDx talk and that got a lot of hate as well. But I like to, I, I looked into the ex Trump aides background and then found out he was fired for being part of a white nationalist event. And, you know, it's kind of hard to feel bad after that. So that's kind of where I stand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder about that, you know, because I mean, I, I'll say that I get some unpleasant 
commentary and some unpleasant messages, but, but frankly, not all that much. Um, I wonder, I mean, do you think that you're getting this kind of unpleasant, again, feedback, I guess? <laughs> I don't know exactly how to refer to this kind of flaming or trolling because of what you're talking about, or maybe because you're a woman or a combination of the two. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a combination of the two. I think it's more so because I'm a woman. Um, and I get a lot of interesting comments about also that because I'm a, I'm only a 2L is what people will say. Like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so young and naive and I don't understand the legal world yet. And I haven't worked enough to be able to see like the evils of the tech companies. Um, so I've gotten that a lot just kind of for my age, I guess. Um, but I do get a lot of the female side, mainly because it's it's a lot of the um, feminists who are on the pro-FOSTA side, because there's a lot of people that think that FOSTA was put in place as a way to kind of stop a lot of the, um, I guess, female, I don't want to say bashing, but a lot of people conflate FOSTA with like combating revenge porn and you know going after perverts is is one of the ones that i i hear all the time and i think there is a huge huge misunderstanding of what that what that law does um but it, it doesn't surprise me that i do get a lot of that commentary and interestingly it's it's from a lot of women um that i get that kind of commentary from it's from which which makes sense to me um i don't get a ton of men that are coming after me mainly because of my gender though. I, I get a lot of men who will say like, you know, I'm a corporate shill. Um, but a lot of the, the comments about how I could be a woman that's defending what, you know, men do on the internet. It does come from a lot of uh, people who are self-proclaimed feminists. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit. I mean, you know, my sense is that uh, at least a certain subset of the people who are concerned about Section 230 in particular, or, or even think it was a bad idea, argue that it effectively protects harassment on the internet. In other words, it makes it easy or possible for people to engage in all kinds of really gross behaviors, including revenge porn and, and other things. I mean, how do you how do you respond to that concern? And and I and I guess more than anything, I kind of wonder. I mean, do you think there are ways to mitigate that problem, or is it just something we have to accept if we want to have the internet in the way we have it today? Um. So I'll be very frank. Uh, I am not a believer of a middle ground solution for Section Two Thirty. Uh, it's all or none, and that doesn't usually go over well with people. But I believe that Section 230 is a it creates a balance for Internet companies and users to thrive. It is what it's kind of the glue to holding the entire Internet together. And any tiny amendment to Section 230, unless it's clearing up what interactive computer service provider is, um, I think would absolutely uh, throw off that balance. So. I do believe there are ways to mitigate I don't believe that solution is in going after Section 230. Um, so I'll come back to that. But one of the, just going back to your question about uh, 
how do I address people that are who will kind of come after me as being a woman and and um you know section two thirty is specifically in the realm of like misogyny and revenge porn. Uh, I like to start with kind of educating first. Um, because again, I, as I said before, I really think there's a severe misunderstanding of, you know, what FOSTA did to amend Section 230. And again, there's a general understand, misunderstanding of Section 230. So back in the day, there used to be a lot of like, it was common to have re- revenge porn websites. Um, and that was kind of before social media became a thing. Nowadays, if you want to get a lot of reach and you really are using revenge porn for the way uh, for for the goal of revenge porn you would you you'd put it out on social media now you want visibility on it so you're less likely to create a website yourself and 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 put up that kind of content and you're more likely uh to put it out on like twitter or snapchat one of one of the big platforms so you'll get more eyes on it and that's a good thing and I know that sounds weird, but given the way that these big tech companies now, because of Section 230, remember the moderator's dilemma, because that's gone and Section 230 has now, it now encourages big platforms to moderate content as they see fit. What a lot of people don't understand is that these major social media companies implement some hefty algorithms with a lot of keyword searching Um to find that kind of content quickly and to remove it and to address it, you know, again, instantly. What FOSTA did, and so FOSTA, just to kind of back up a little bit, um, it was, it's the uh, Fight, Lo- Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. It was a bill kind of put out to, I guess, to target Backpage, and Backpage was known as like a sex trafficking website. Uh, interestingly though, Backpage came down, not because of FOSTA. FOSTA was actually enacted after Backpage came down. Um, and it was actually going around section 230 because section 230 does not, uh, allow for criminal activity and sex trafficking is criminal. Uh, it came down in that regard and there's an even bigger, uh, you know, more, more story to Backpage, but it's a bit convoluted. So I won't, I won't go down that route, but anyways, the, the FOSTA was an amendment to section 230 that basically says that if a website knowingly hosts that kind of content, they can be liable for it. So how did tech companies respond to that? Well, they see the knowingly and they go, okay, well, we're going to go back to the CompuServe days. And so they've stripped out a lot of the keyword searching that's in their algorithms for anything that would have to do with sex trafficking. Because their idea is, well, if we're not monitoring for it, and we're not searching for it, then we can't know about it. If something slips through the cracks, there's no way we can know about it. So they shut themselves down. And that's a problem because now if you've got somebody putting out, like, let's say it's revenge porn content, heavily misogynistic, maybe it's less likely to be caught and taken down as quickly by these major platforms because it includes words or it includes some type of content that we're no longer those those platforms are no longer searching for because they don't want to be hit with a knowingly charge later on for something that could be construed as sex trafficking. So in a way, Section 230 actually promotes the faster finding and removal of such content 
that would be deemed as misogynistic. It's, it's actually, it's a law that protects women. And if you look at it, the revenge porn problems that we had, you know, long ago at the beginning stages of the internet, even before Section 230 and, and shortly after Section 230, it's not as much of a problem today on social media um, with Section 230. Now, I kind of wonder if that's going to change with FOSTA. I mean, now we're seeing uh, com- we're seeing platforms go in the direction of just absolutely removing and banning adult content entirely. I believe Patreon just decided to start banning adult content. Um, so we're going more the prodigy family friendly route. But yeah, that's that, that's kind of the response I give to people who, you know, accuse me of saying, well, you're fighting for a misogynistic law. Um, this this law doesn't allow women who are victimized to get, you know, get what they need. Um, and again, it, the platforms are not to address the mitigation. The platforms are not the right target for such content. It's the people. It's the users. So the right outlet here is to go after the people who are putting out this content. But eliminating Section 230 or putting liability on the platforms is not going to solve that problem. It's not going to solve this inherent misogynistic society that we kind of live in today. Um, that's that's all it's going to do is remove outlets for these platforms to be able to take content down or to be able to find that content faster. Um, yeah. What do you think about platforms like like Backpage, which you mentioned earlier, or other platforms where it, it seems like <clears throat> the platform itself is kind of designed to facilitate or even encourage unpleasant, misogynistic, harassing content and or activity. Do you think there's room for a law that would distinguish between that kind of a platform and like a platform like Facebook or Twitter that's might, you know, occasionally receive that kind of content, but certainly isn't designed for it and wasn't kind of intended to promote it. I think this is a very, this is a tricky question. Um, because I believe a lot of people conflate, conflate, the problem is that people conflate sex trafficking with sex work. And, you know, sex trafficking is obviously very illegal. Um, And again, if there's a website that goes up that is dedicated to sex trafficking, um, Section 230 would have nothing to do with that website because Section 230 doesn't provide an umbrella for illegal activities. Um, Backpage arguably, and it's, it's, I don't want to argue that much for Backpage because there, there was a lot of criminal, um, a lot of things going on in the background uh, that were absolutely shady and, you know, but I would argue that Backpage and Craigslist and Twitter, like a lot of those types of companies, they are more, they were more in like the sex work category and sex work is a very, it's actually known as a very female empowering kind of job. It's not the same thing as, um, these women who are being sold into like, you know, your sex slavery, it's, it's not like the sex trafficking world. 
they're two very, very different worlds. Um, and so the problem is, is that people conflate the two and then they come out with FOSTA, which combats both worlds at the same time. So personally, I believe if websites want to cater to sex work and they want, that's, that's okay to me. That's, that's a moderation decision that they would have to make. Um, I think it's very empowering for, for women. And um, I also think it's, it's very important for women who are in that, in that kind of work. It's for their safety as well. One of the things that Backpage allowed for women um, who were in, who were doing sex work, this is completely opposed to sex trafficking uh, was that it kind of gave them the opportunity to vet their clients before going out on the street and meeting them randomly um, and to make their own decisions as to who they would and wouldn't work with. Um, and there are now statistics that have come out that showed, you know, after FOSTA, there's a lot of women, there's a lot more women that have gone missing because they've had to go back out to the streets because a lot of these companies who, again, not dedicated to sex trafficking, who had a platform for sex work, but now have, because the two are conflated, they've had to remove that outlet for women who are in the sex working category. Um, these women are driven back out onto the streets, more likely to get hurt, more likely to go missing. In some statistics, we've seen um, a few women have been killed. And so that's kind of the sad consequences of trying to make these laws that target just sex trafficking or just one illegal activity, it has significant backblow or, you know, just significant, yeah, sorry, lost train of thought. It has significant um, blowback on a lot of other legitimate fields and types of work. Understood, understood. So Jess, um, in closing, I, I understand that you're in like a new program, the tech edge program yeah. at Santa Clara. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether that program in particular was an attraction for you about the school. And if you have any thoughts for other students who might be interested in pursuing a career in law and technology policy. Sure. Um, yeah, so the Tech Edge JD program was a driving factor for why I wanted to go to Santa Clara Law. Um, the program is dedicated to students who already kind of know what they want to do going into law school, and that's not super common. Um, but for those students, you get into the program and, you know, even uh, we have orientation the week before everybody else has orientation, you already start down on your career path. And so it's dedicated to being able to help students hit the ground running the minute they start uh, law school, which helps kind of put you ahead of your colleagues when it comes to networking, when it comes to interviews, because you stand out a lot better in the field when you already know what it is you want to do and when you've already started working in that field as well. And so the already started working part comes into these six major milestones that we have to complete as tech edge students to get the certificate. And a lot of that has to do with, um, because it's very Silicon Valley tech uh, oriented, it has to do with, you know, drafting a transaction or a negotiation, or, um, you know, we have to learn Silicon Valley best practices. Um, you know, the just 
getting invested in the way Silicon Valley tech and Silicon Valley startups work. And then, you know, having already completed those milestones, you kind of put together this portfolio so that the end, when you graduate, you know, you give that to your dream firm or your dream career, or your dream in-house job, and your grades kind of sit in the background while your resume and your experiences really make you shine and push you forward. Um, there was a lot of talk when I was coming to law school. I knew that I wanted to go straight in-house. I didn't want to do the big law route because um, I really want to work for the tech companies and I want to do tech policy work. And a lot of people will tell you that's impossible. Um, you can't go it. You have to go the big firm route. No one will look at you. And the Tech Edge program kind of flips that on its head. So they go, well, okay, why don't we do the training that you need in in-house is very different from the training you get in a firm. And in some cases, when you go in-house, you're going to have to, they'll have to undo it all and, and retrain you for an in-house lifestyle. So why don't we just get that training over with now during law school to make you a more viable candidate when you graduate? And so that was incredibly attractive to me because it aligned with my career, my career goals. And um, now I'm at a place where I don't even get asked about my GPA or my grades. My resume does all the talking for me and I land the interview just based on that. And a lot of that has to do with the Tech Edge program and, and our, uh, our, our advisors through that program. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jess. It was really a, yeah. a great pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank <music> you.